If you're ready for freedom from the grind, then passive income from real estate investing is the best way to get you there. If you don't know where to start or what to do next, then the Rent Roll Radio Show is the best place to get you there. Join us while we discuss the best practices, strategies, and mindset you'll need and give you actionable content to get you from where you are to where you want to be. Hey, Rip Roll Radio listeners, I am your guest host, Cole McKnight, filling in for Sterling Chapman, and we have an awesome guest today, Francisco Alzuru. Francisco, thanks so much for joining us. It is my pleasure to be here. Now, we just had a little conversation before we started recording, but can you catch us back up on your background and how you got into real estate? Sure. I I was born in, in, in Venezuela, and my college degree is in urban planning. Um, I had my own uh, property appraisal practice down in Venezuela for many years. And um, as part of my formation, I came to Oklahoma City to get an MBA in uh, 1989, 1990. And so I went back and got a job at an investment bank with the idea of learning to value companies. (laughs) That bank eventually... transferred me to Miami. They had an office in Miami, Florida. So I worked there for a couple of years until the bank went under. And so I found a job. By then, I had two or three years of experience analyzing companies, analyzing uh, stock markets. And and so my, my days as a real estate appraiser were pretty much over. And I was offered a job at a large money management firm in uh, Fort Lauderdale. So I did that for about 20 years, but the job went away kind of overnight. And so I found myself in the U.S. Uh, unemployed uh, and not really knowing what to do. And so the, the prospect of going back home to Venezuela were, were impossible. That, that was out of the question. And so I went back to my, my, my college training. I decided to dabble into real estate. I met a gentleman uh, who was doing uh, single-family homes, flips, and and buying long-term and holds in the Indiana suburbs of Chicago. Uh, If you know anything about what's going on in the country, Illinois is the second largest loser of population. And so a lot of people migrate east to uh, Indiana. For several reasons, uh, one of them being the cost of uh, real estate is significantly lower. And so we bought uh, probably 15, 20 units in that market. We flipped some, we kept some. And at some point, I did get another uh, nine to five job, another W-2 job. And so I managed those houses uh, with a local property manager, and, and that gave me the, the the gusto, the impetus to consider uh, multifamily. And so I started looking for multifamily properties in that area uh, in, a, in an attempt to scale up. And that effort eventually led me to the southern end of Indiana, uh, which is the Louisville, Kentucky MSA, which is shared by the two states. And so uh, uh, one day I found the first property that I bought in in a in a in a county just south of Louisville called she- uh, Bullitt County, a town called Shepherdsville. And my college training came very handy because I identified two trends immediately in in this in the Louisville MSA that have become uh, very useful in all this time. One, uh, I recognize that the Louisville Airport is the global headquarters for UPS. So every UPS package in the world goes through the Louisville uh, airport. And as a result of that, uh, a new industry was born many years ago. And uh, this county, Bullitt County, decided to grow, making itself available for that particular industry, which is e-commerce. When I, you know, quote unquote, discovered uh, Bullitt County in 2018, 2019, Bullitt County had something like 10 million square feet of uh, uh, commercial real space, uh, industrial uh, space. And that amount is now inching into 20 million. In in absolute terms, it's not a fantastic number, but it is a fantastic growth rate. 
more than half of the population that work in those warehouses in Bullock County come from outside of the county. So the county is desperate to uh, find housing. And so we bought 27 townhouses in, in, in that city. Uh, about a year later, later, we bought another 28 on the other side of the street. Uh, so we controlled that particular uh, development. And that was really the beginning of our expansion. We bought those units back in 2019, 18. And today we own about 544 units all throughout the state of Kentucky. We decided that once we planted our flag in the state, it was important for us to achieve economies of scale. And so we have houses from Bowling Green in the southern end, close to the Tennessee border, in Elizabethtown, which is kind of right halfway between uh, Louisville and, 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 and Bowling Green, Shepherdsville, which is just south of um, Louisville, in Louisville, of course, and then east of Louisville in a town called Georgetown, which is part of the Lexington MSA. So before we dive into multifamily and how you expanded so quickly and so rapidly, can we touch on the property management that you did for those first 15 units? You said you worked hand in hand with a property manager. How involved were you? How in the weeds were you? Were you going and changing doorknobs? Were you changing air filters? Or were you more of a passive, let the property manager handle things? No, no, we were definitely passive. But I suspect that we were more festering a property manager than the normal passive property manager or asset manager. So I, I mentioned I was based in Miami, Florida. And so I used to come to uh, uh, Kentucky at least once a month. I would spend a week here. And of course, the first uh, you know six months after we went from 27 units to about 180, in a period of six months, I was just focused on those three properties, just looking at numbers, looking at their rental numbers, looking at uh, a, a, you know what kind of rents we were getting from uh, uh, from our our tenants, what kind of uh, vacancies we were having, what kind of concessions we were giving, if we were giving any, uh, and then on the expense side, I was very very focused on the expense side. All our properties when we bought them their expense ratio was somewhere around 35 to 40%. So we were paying our investors, uh, you know, their required returns plus uh, more. The second property we bought was a value-added deal. And our property manager did a fantastic job on that value-added deal. It was 34 apartments in Mount Washington. Um, the property manager had a partner on the construction side who always gave us the best bids. And so they were very, they worked very close together. They were, you know, semi-integrated and that made things a lot easier for us. However, uh, as we continue to grow, the next uh, property we bought was an 84 unit property in Georgetown, which is an hour east. And that caused a couple of problems. One, uh, the contractor did not have the personnel to handle 84 a renovation. She she could handle 34 because it was Mount Washington, just you know, 10 minutes south of Louisville. But handling 84 an hour east represented uh, a series of new challenges. Apart from that, a, the the property manager had some turnover that, uh, in my opinion, caused uh, a deterioration in some of those numbers that I mentioned before, the expense ratio, uh, you know, how much more, how much money we were expending, how much, what was our ability to increase the rents for our tenants. And uh, we continue to grow. We, we continue to chase, uh, uh, you know, larger properties. And so between, between November of 2020, which is when we bought those 84 units and December of 21, we added another 250 units or so. And so this added. What, what does that actually look like, though? How do you go and add 250 units? What are you doing day to day to get there? Well, the first 31 units were uh, 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 an off market deal, a broker that knew 
that we owned 150 units in Elizabethtown, brought us 31 units that were just a stone's throw away. And the rents on that property were about $200 cheaper than our rents. And so they presented us the project and we made an offer immediately. Um, I was blessed that I, I grew up in an area of Miami where I have a lot, lots of friends that have money, lots of friends that do business with people that have money, uh, bankers. And these bankers work with Latin American investors that come to Miami often to bank. So my, my network of family and friends grew very, very rapidly. And this is something that a lot of people are interested in in investing in because you're getting them a, a safe return, a constant return, and it's supported by real estate. Uh, in many Latin American countries where their economies are in shambles, for them to save their equity, their capital in real estate is something that they look forward to. And so I, I this deal is 31 units, for instance, I had one investor, you know, I needed to raise $700,000. And just one person wrote me a check. We put the $700,000 there. We got a non-recourse loan. So that was, uh, you know, quote unquote, easy transaction. In November of that year, we were presented an opportunity to buy 150 houses in Bowling Green. This was a built-to-rent community. Uh, the numbers had a lot of noise. They, were, they had noise on their revenue and they had noise on the expense. And uh, this was actually the second time this deal came to the market. I don't know what it was. I'm assuming it was my my past as an analyst. But when I looked at the numbers, I was immediately, I was able to see through the noise immediately. And so I was able to isolate the, the factors that were causing the, the noise on the revenue side, the factors that were causing the noise on the expense side. We underwrote it and we got it funded by Fannie in, you know, 60 days. So the, the acquisition part of the equation was fairly quick. We went immediately a month later and were presented an opportunity to do another value-added deal here in Louisville, a couple of older properties that had 100% rent appreciation potential. <clears throat> we just needed to fix the properties. So <clears throat> when people know that you're serious, that you have access to capital, and that you're doing things, you know, somewhat correctly, then some of the deals actually flow naturally to you. And so as we expanded our, our, our platform and our footprint, we put a lot of strain on our property manager. And uh, uh, about a year ago, we started to notice a few things that we thought, well, maybe we can do this better. You know, maybe we can add value here. Maybe we can add value there. And our involvement in the property management business started to become a little more. And so for, you know, three or four months, we, we tried to get more and more involved on the property management side. But it was evident to us that it was not going to be the, the, the case unless we actually took over the properties. And so we, back in probably December, January, we started thinking about the possibility of closing a Miami office and moving up here, which we did. Uh, I moved in uh, early June. Uh, my son-in-law, who runs the property management company, moved about a month later. And so we are uh, now officially uh, based in Louisville and running all our properties. We we took our properties on a staggered basis. So we took a couple in March. We bought another one in, in March, actually the first deal that we did since 2022. So we had been uh, sort of dry for 15 months. So we, we bought a fairly new construction in uh, in Louisville on the, on the southeast side of Louisville um, near the Klondike region. Uh, we bought 36 apartments there. Um, that was, like I said, the first deal in over 15 months. But we took that immediately. We took that, that one over immediately when we purchased it. And then we took one or two properties every month until the 1st of July. So August was actually our first month when we had all 500 units under our responsibility. We've hired uh, three property managers already. We have a small maintenance uh, staff. 
and now we're beginning to work on boosting our 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 you know back office clerical staff in the office. So how many units per property manager? If it's if it's five hundred, that's one seventy-five, so give or take. In Bowling Green, we have 150 units. We have one property manager there and one maintenance person. It's not enough. So she depends a lot on external contractors. In the list of a town, we have another 150 units. The, the, the girl, the lady that runs them was employed by the previous property manager. So she knows the properties well, and she's more than capable of handling all 150. She recently hired uh, a maintenance tech. And so right now that is working uh, well. She requires some support on the maintenance side. So we have a, a maintenance person based in Shepherdsville. Shepherdsville is just 20 minutes north of uh, Elizabethtown, 30 minutes north. And so she's based there. And so she helps in Elizabethtown when the property manager in Elizabethtown needs it. But the 55 units in Elizabethtown, the 104 units in Louisville, and the 84 units in uh, uh, Georgetown, we are managing those with a group of three of us. So my son-in-law, myself, and my other daughter-in-law, we handle different responsibilities for all the five or six properties. So my, my daughter does the leasing. Uh, we have a maintenance tech in 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 Georgetown who's fantastic. He can show properties. He can take care of a lot of the clerical responsibilities, uh, but he's very good with his hands. So he's doing all the maintenance, but also helping us on the property management side. And so I I we float between the different uh, properties to make sure that you know maintenance gets done, that we cut the grass, that we post notices whenever we need, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So. The answer to your question is we we know that somewhere between 150 between 100 and 150 doors should be the, the the threshold for a property manager and so we're getting ready to close a new deal of a brand new property here in Louisville that's 48 units so we will have the 36 we closed in March plus these 48 that's uh 82 84 units we will hire a new property manager to handle those 84 uh, units. And then both uh, my son-in-law and I can kind of uh, uh, peel back a little bit and, and then start to uh, do more supervision and, and going back to the asset management business, which was our, our original plan. So when y'all hire property managers, what are you looking for? Well, we certainly look for experience. We need somebody... <clears throat> We need people, especially with our with the kind of company that we have and the stage where we are. I'm not an expert in property manager. Sebastian's not an expert in property manager. So we need to bring people that know what they're doing so that they can help us uh, grow as property managers. So that's the first quality. The second quality is personability and the ability to relate to tenants. We stress the fact that we are not a big corporation, that we're not a conglomerate, that we are a family company. We are willing to look at the tenant's personal situation and the, and the tenant's conditions. For us, communication is probably the most important characteristic that should exist in this business. So if we have somebody who can't pay for ABC reason, we're not going to immediately uh, uh, give them a notice and, bake and, 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 and and threaten them with eviction. We want to understand what's going on. Uh, if And we try to accommodate their needs and, and set up payment plans, for instance, when they can't pay. Uh, so we will at least try to help everyone one time. Uh, when 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 they backstab us or or you know they fail to honor their commitments, then you know things may change. Oh, so that my, our our property managers, I want them to know the tenants uh, by name. I want them to know where they work. I want them to know uh, you know what makes them live in our properties. Right. So, have you noticed if 
that you give a concession to a tenant and say, okay, we'll put you on this payment plan. Like, is, is it the adage you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. Have you noticed any of that happening? There's, there's both, but the satisfaction of helping somebody who is in that situation and see them pull through absolutely offsets the one or two cases where they don't come through and they, you know, uh, you know, destroy your your trust and your confidence. We had a lady in Georgetown. Uh, she got into a very bad accident. She doesn't have anybody in town. So she disappeared for about 15 days. So she didn't pay her August rent. We finally were able to reach, get a hold of her in, in, in by the 10th of August when we were going to, you know, post a notice on her door. Uh, and, and so my daughter was able to get a hold of her and, and and when she recognized that we had the right to evict her, but we were going to pull back the eviction because we uh, underst understood her circumstances, she literally started crying on the phone. You know, she has started making their, her payments and, and she's pretty much caught up. That offsets, you know, that, that the positive feeling of helping somebody uh, feel safe in their home, that they're not gonna get evicted. Uh, uh, definitely offsets anybody who uh, you know will stab you in the back and, and and will not come through. Sure, sure. I wish we could do something like that down here. Um, I think our tenant class is a lot different, and you know we have we have some higher level rent tenants, and they're pretty good. But we we also have some lower income tenants. And but our our properties are pretty much yeah, I would say C class. A, I mean, our average rent, with the exception of the houses in Bowling Green and the big houses in Shepherdsville, which is about 200 of our units, our average rent is just 800 bucks, 800, 900 dollars. Mm. The problem is, well, not the problem, because we're in smaller cities. Uh, you know, Elizabethtown is a city of 100,000 people. Georgetown probably has a little bit less than that. So any apartment complex that is in fairly decent shape will have a, a reasonably good quality tenant because most people there work in uh, auto suppliers, work at the Toyota plant. Uh, Ford is building its battery plant just south of Elizabethtown. It's bringing 5,000 jobs into the town. So if you if you calculate the percentage of new jobs that is creating, this is like a 10, 15% increase in the number of jobs in the city. That's equivalent to, you know, Intel setting up a new plant in, in Phoenix or Tesla setting up a new plant in Austin. And so these are people that for the most part are employed. And while their rents are not very high, uh, you know, they have, a, 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 you know enough training and education and life skills that they recognize, uh, you know that they have a responsibility with their landlord and, and to pay the rent. Right. Do you know off the top of your head what your vacancy rate is? Yes, uh, less than five percent. Really? Yeah. All that across. is very impressive. Yeah, well, and it's one of the things I like about this state because it is very unassuming. You know, everybody's looking at Texas and Arizona and Florida and the Carolinas and 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 Kentucky really goes under the radar because it is halfway. Everything, every every economic projection that you see, every demographic number that you see, Kentucky's kind of in the middle. You know, it's somewhere between 20 and 30. So uh, it's not like the most depressed states, but it's not a darling of investors. So the majority of the builders here are local. The majority of, of, of people that you see in this business are local. There's only a few nationwide or regional companies. And so uh, a lot of people have not been able to identify some of these growth factors. Uh, rent increases in Georgetown or in Bowling Green are double digits, and they may not be the rent growth that you see in Florida or in Arizona, but they're not too far behind. The problem is, in the aggregate, the states, the state is an agricultural state, and the vast majority of the counties in Kentucky are losing population, but they're losing population to technology. A lot of those people are moving into the cities, and those cities are the ones that are uh, increasing population. And so that's where you see 
the the uh, the, the rent growth numbers. So it is a, a very very interesting uh, place to invest, and that's why we decided that we are going to continue to grow in this state. So you spoke a few minutes back about a property that had the potential for a hundred percent appreciation in in rent and value and all that. So what what was going on there? Was it severely mismanaged? Was it super outdated? What was going on there? Well, it was outdated. It is a 50, 60 year old property, but it's in a great location. It's in an area of Louisville where you're only two, two and a half miles away from downtown. You're close to very, very good residential areas. And so uh, the buildings were built in the you know, 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, and they were managed by the heirs of the original developer. And so they had done nothing to the units. And so the rents in that property were somewhere between $650 and $750 a month. And we are renting those units now that we have remodeled them uh, at about $1,300 uh, a unit. So not quite 100%, but you know, you see, you see the point. Um, the, the, the lowest rent growth that we have seen is 50%. So we've gone from, from 750 to about 1,050. Gotcha. What do y'all do for remodels? Do y'all do full everything, whole nine yards, or do y'all pick and choose, maybe just kitchen, bathroom? That, well, those, that, that, the property that I'm talking about is actually two buildings. One of them, we had to do the whole nine yards. We had to put uh, LVP throughout. We had to do new kitchens, new bathrooms. Uh, in some cases, we had to change the furnaces. Uh, so, you know, when you paint them and, 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 and turn them around, uh, they look like a brand new apartment. That building, we're also beginning to paint the building. We're going to change the doors because Every the, the, the building is divided into seven stacks. In each stack, you have uh, four or five uh, different apartments. So we are uh, changing the lower, the doors. We want to put uh, glass doors so that people can see inside and, and make sure that if you come at home, we have a lot of students in, in that building. So when they come at night, especially the females, they want to make sure that there's nobody behind the door, you know, sleeping or 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 somebody you know that may represent a threat. So. Uh, we're changing all the concrete work. Uh, you know, the steps going into leading into the doors uh, require uh, uh, you know brand new concrete because they're very old. So we're doing a whole uh, facelift to the building and the apartments. The other property require more of a facelift of the outside, the grounds. The other property has a lot more greenery, so we took care of all the old bushes that were growing incontrollably, so we did new landscaping. And then the apartments had incredibly beautiful, real hardwood floors. So we did not touch the hardwood floors in the cases where they were needed. We um, uh, sanded them and, and refinished the, state, the, the original uh, hardwood floor, but I believe out of the 22 apartments, we had two that had carpets. And so we had to, uh, you know, put LVP in those two. Uh, but we did then put brand new kitchens. Uh, we had to rewire a lot of the uh, buildings because the, the wiring was 60 years old. Uh, had to do a lot of uh, uh, new piping and, and, and plumbing work. Uh, the air conditions are surprisingly good in that building, so we change them as needed. Uh, and then a, a project for the future there is to change the windows. So hopefully after we refinance our loan, we're going to try to see if we can use a PACE program and then get financing to change all the windows in the property. Have you noticed with some of those older properties from, say, the 50s or 60s, that when y'all take over, is there an awkward period where the reputation and the culture of that complex is being shifted. And have you noticed, like, is it more difficult? Does it take longer? Like when you take a property and it used to be some drugs around there or no. maybe some bad, some bad tenants, like, does it take a long time to get that new class of tenants in after you take over? No, actually, uh, this this area of Louisville is really, you know, working area. 
I, I, I don't think I could classify it as blue collar, uh, but it's definitely, a, you know, not, it is a C area, but very close to a B. So a, a couple of blocks from where we are in both those complexes, we have houses that may sell for half a million dollars. And so the tenant level, the tenant base in those two properties, while not the, the you know the best class of tenant there is, uh, they're not actually the you know the bottom of the barrel either. So we never had drug problems. We never had a reputation issue because again, the the in fact I think we created a reputation issue because we had tenants that have been living there for about twenty years, and so it is very hard for them to understand that. You know, when when the original builder did the, the the apartments 50, 60 years ago, well, whatever rent they were paying then uh, was high, but now that rent no longer exists anywhere in the in the area. And given the prices that we pay, well, we can't support somebody paying six hundred dollars a month for a property that is you know three blocks away from probably the hippest street in all of Louisville where everybody wants to go eat, go to the bars, you know, walk, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, uh, it created a bit of tension because when we ask people, well, we need to renovate your unit. So you have two choices. You can move to a renovated unit and pay the new rent. Or if you don't want to do that, then you have 30 days to vacate. And so I know that for a lot of people, that was a big challenge because some of them were used to pay $600, $700 for the last 20 years. And now all of a sudden they had to move to places where they were going to have to pay $1,000 and they were not in that position, especially if they are on a fixed income. In fact, we still have one tenant that we just couldn't, couldn't have her evicted because she has nowhere to go. And, and literally, she has nowhere to go. And she only can pay $750. So we actually found somebody who's chipping in to try to help her uh, pay uh, about $100 more. And so we're going to have to fix her apartment with her inside little by little. The, the positive side of that is that she takes so good care of the apartment, such a good care of the apartment, that we have to do nothing to the floor. So we have to come in and paint and maybe do a new kitchen. And so we'll do it you know, slowly. But it's the one exception because we just could not put it out in the street. Yeah, and I, that shows you that not all landlords and property owners are slumlords and out to get you and just trying to scrape every penny together to screw over the tenant. Like, you do have a heart. We we are nice people. We, we want to help others, but sometimes it, it can work and sometimes it doesn't work out. I, like I said, I'm I'm not an expert on the property management side. What I know the property management side is what I learned since we started buying properties. Again, I did the single family thing first and then apartments. Uh, but when we started uh, the property management company, you know, I, I was really afraid of the tenant interaction because the, the, the comments that you just made is the view I had of landlords. And therefore, that's what I thought people thought of landlords. So I have been very involved in this property we have in Georgetown because we have a loan and we were required to complete all renovations by July 31st. So from June 1st to July 31st, I was there every day working with the uh, uh, contractor and making sure that we completed the renovations on time, which we did. But by being there every day, I interacted with, I don't know, 25, 30 of our tenants out of 84 that we have. I kid you not, with the exception of maybe one or two tenants, all the other interactions were absolutely fantastic. They could not believe that I actually spent time speaking with them. And I got to know them by first name. So, for instance, the last draw that we requested from the bank I forgot to take pictures of the renovated units. So I actually wrote the tenants and say, hey, listen, I need you to take, do me a favor. I need you to take a picture of the door half way open so that it shows a number in your door and I can they can see the floor and the kitchen. And they went and when they went out of their way to take the pictures and send them to me so that I could send them to the lender so that we could get our draw. Uh, that wouldn't have that would have not happened. Uh, three months ago, because I had no relationship with these guys, called me, uh, and you know we try to do what's best for them and for our investors. 
That's a great story. You are, you're doing the Lord's work with the tenants here. That's awesome. So when you go to acquire a new property with what's going on in today's market and today's economy and the interest rate and all that, what are you looking for? Well, like I said earlier, we have done only one deal since December of 21. So we did not do a single deal in 22. We did these 36 units in, in 23, and we're getting ready to close on 48 units now in September. <laughs> Those two, the last two transactions have something in common, and that is they're fairly new properties that underwrite very well. So every time I, I'm looking at a property package, whether I find it myself or a broker sends it to me, the first thing I do, I send it to the mortgage broker because a mortgage broker, given that conditions have changed and interest rates have gone up, the one thing that people don't talk about is that spreads over those interest rates have also gone up. So you can't just assume that because interest rates have gone up, I don't know, 200 basis points from whatever you were calculating before, that the interest rate that you're going to get on the product that you're buying is going to be also 200 basis points higher than you were getting before. So uh, 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 brokers and lenders are more focused now on the DSCR as opposed to before where they were more focused on the LTV. And so before it was, it was an automatic issue that they would give you a 75% loan to value. Now they look at the DSER and then the loan to value is a byproduct of what the DSER says. So if I cannot get 70% loan to value, I won't consider buying the property. And the reason for that is my investor money is the most expensive source of capital for us. So if I have to raise 40% of the value of the property in capital, it has to be incredibly cheap for us to be able to uh, buy it because 40% of our expenses are going to go in, 40% of our interest payments are going to go into capital base. And that's the most expensive type of money. So we have been focusing only on pretty much brand new properties that uh, underwrite uh, very well. And, and so, uh, again, we've only done two deals in the last two years because we haven't been able to find properties that meet our investment criteria. So you're looking for like class A, A plus properties? Well, I think there's not a clear definition of what class A and class B is. Uh, when I came to the business, class A was an age issue. So something built in the last three, four or five years would be class A, then class B and then class C. But there is a prevalent position in most investors that class is related to where the property is located. So in a good neighborhood would be class A. I think that creates a problem because if I go to the best neighborhood in Louisville, for instance, and I buy a brand new property, well, can I compare that to say the, the town of Georgetown where there is no A, a, a neighborhood? You know, it's, it, the entire city is a working a class uh, area. So a new property, is it class A because it's new? Or is it class, say, C, because the entire town of Georgetown is, you know, working blue-collar population? So the, the answer to your question is the two properties that we have bought here are in areas of Louisville that are not your, 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 your first destination if you were looking at, you know, top of the market. But they're brand new properties. And because of such a demand for housing in Louisville in particular, uh, you know, we had three vacancies in July in the property that we bought in March. We filled them within a week. Uh, the, the, the property that we're closing in September, uh, we, were gonna, we were supposed to be closing it if they got to 90% occupancy. They're already at 100. Wow. I don't know if you know that the city of Louisville, Jefferson County Public Schools, had to delay the opening of their school year for a week. When they opened two weeks ago, uh, they had a massive problem with buses. Uh, they do have a, a, a problem of, of bus drivers. They have less bus drivers than they had last year. But the superintendent said 
that they have an incredibly larger number of students and they were not counting on that. And he said, and, and I almost quote, everybody seems to be moving to Louisville because the avalanche of new students was more than they could handle, especially because they had le less drivers. But the point is that, that the, the, the increasing population is real. But again, like I said earlier, not a whole lot of people know this. And so I see that in all these properties that we're buying or that we're managing where, uh, you know, we put a little street sign and we get 10 applications in a matter of two or three days. We put on a Zillow ad and we'll get 10, 15 applications in a weekend. And that's across the board throughout the state. Wow. And that just goes to show you, you don't have to invest in Dallas, Texas or Miami, Florida or whatever. Like you can find other cities that everybody else isn't talking about. Like it's not the, the gold rush in 1949. Like you can yeah. have other areas where there's money to be made and you can do things successfully. The downside of that is, you know, Dallas is such a large city or Miami that, you know, for instance, driving for dollars is something that you can do and you can find smaller complexes here and there that nobody has seen that no broker has touched. I can tell you that this particular state is overbroker. There's not a single property that I have approached on my own that hasn't been already approached by, by a broker. So the regional brokers that work uh, the area uh, are doing a phenomenal job getting in touch with the property owners. And so everybody knows what the, uh, the prevalent market prices are, where the cap rates are. And so that's very that makes it very difficult for us to find, you know, the, the diamonds in the rough, uh, the gems that are going to, uh, you know, triple in value or double in value because, you know, the, the, there's very few properties that go, that fly under the radar. So when you were starting to scale two or three years ago, or I guess three or four years ago at this point, how were you getting in touch with these brokers? Like, how are you sourcing these deals? The first deal came from a broker. Uh, I have to give uh, kudos to uh, Charlie Dobbins, who uh, Charlie is the person who uh, introduced me to uh, Brendan Chisholm. Brendan is the person who introduced me to Starling. Uh, Charlie is a is a is a lawyer in, in in New Hampshire, and he has worked as a as a mentor for many investors. And one thing that Charlie did was give me the confidence to be able to talk to uh, brokers and not only appear knowledgeable, but really show that I was knowledgeable, that I wasn't a rookie, that I just didn't come off a boot camp and, you know, was was uh, paraphrasing somebody's cooking uh, re recipe. And so I, I guess, you know, 20 years of, of marketing uh, the, the the, the portfolio management business, the asset management business, when I when I where I was working, probably helped. Uh, as you can see, you know, English is not my first language, so I had to do a lot of work eh, eh, when I needed to present our, our capabilities to uh, you know a, a, a investment committee at a major investment firm or major uh, university or major foundation. So I guess that helped. But the fact of the matter is that you can make a fool of yourself if you are talking about, you know, cap rates and, and, and you have no idea what you're talking about, right? And so uh, since the very first day, uh, I always address the, the broker population, including my investment group as part of my investment decision. So I never, I never displayed insecurity. I never said, well, I'm just beginning to get known to this market. No, we were an investment group that we were setting our sights in Kentucky. And so, you know, I went from 27 units in the first deal to 34 units in the in second deal to 120 in the third deal. And I remember that that third deal was a, we had a buyer's interview where the broker was sitting with the property owner. 
And, you know, uh, evidently, uh, I passed with flying colors because they signed the property uh, to us. And so uh, sourcing the deals uh, came, a lot of them have come from brokers because, as I said, uh, uh, the state is over broker, in my opinion. But of the eight or nine deals that we've done, three have been the result of our own efforts. So the second deal, the 34 units that I bought in Mount Washington, that came from a retail broker that I met at a, at a K-RIA meeting where I sat next to him. I told him what I did for a living. And he called me a week later saying, hey, I have this friend who has this apartment building. He wants to sell it. He wants, you know, $2 million. He found me the, found me the information. I did the numbers and, and, and we bought it. So, you know, I kind of think I, I sourced that myself. Um, the I, I mentioned I bought 27 uh, townhomes. That was the first deal. And then we bought the other 28 across the street. That one came directly from the seller. So the sellers, the, the two owners were cousins. They developed the land together. And so we bought from one of the cousins first. And then the other cousin saw how we what we were doing. And he came to us and said, hey, I'll, I'll sell you my houses too. So that was source as well. And then I mentioned the broker who... Uh, had the 31 units across the street from where we have, you know, our 120. And, and so he called me and said, listen, I'm not even going to market this. Uh, it's yours if you want it. And so, you know, that's, that's the, uh, that's a Nirvana, right? Everybody wants to get those deals. Uh, but, but we, we, we had earned the, the, their trust. We already had a reputation. We, we did the numbers and we made a serious offer and that's why we, we got it. And so, uh, you know, we we still work with workers, but if we can, and we're brokers, but if we can continue to source our deals, uh, we will do that. So, how much do you value those local meetups? I'm actually looking forward to starting my own meetup for multifamily here in Louisville. There is not one, and so uh, I know that Brand, uh, Brandon has been very. Uh, 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 successful, uh, I believe he's in Connecticut or Philadelphia. And so uh, when I thought of that idea, Charlie had me uh, get in touch with Brandon uh, Brandon to uh, uh, you know get his uh, feedback so that I could start my own. Uh, uh, this is a, a fairly small market and I know there is one meetup for a single family people. It's very, very well attended. So I am beginning to do the homework to see if I can start my meetup on the multifamily side. I want to do it for two reasons. One, because it could be a source of deals. And two, because, well, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to continue to expand my network of investors. So I'd love to be able to, uh, uh, you know, reach a different uh, level of investors. And, and I think the meetup is a, is a good way to do it. Definitely. We uh, we host a local meetup once a month. It's a little bit more geared toward the single family than the multifamily, but we still have, we try and provide as much value as possible. We've had mortgage lenders, appraisers, and, you know, everybody in between. So highly recommend it. Um, and if you're listening, definitely go attend a local meetup in your town. Now, Francisco, let's hop into our radio round. What is your favorite book? Well, that's not going to be a popular answer in, uh, you know, in most circles in this country, but uh, it's The Secret Gospel of Virgin Mary. So the Mother of Christ uh, allegedly wrote a book, and uh, it was dictated to St. John. It was discovered in a monastery in Spain, apparently some nun in the third uh, century from the area of Hispania or Spain, they traveled to the Holy Land, found the the, uh, the the documents, brought them to Spain, and then many years later, another uh, group of people found a second version of the same document in another monastery that was uh, complete because the first one was missing the first and the last chapter, but it was exactly the same uh, document. So they published it. And it's called The Secret Gospel of Mary. Um, it is a incredibly beautiful description of what life would have been uh, uh, educating 
uh, and you mentioned the good Lord, so I'm, I'm assuming that you're a, a believer, but there's there's no way that any harm can come to anyone who reads that book. It is an absolutely positive and, and, and beautiful book. What was that title one more time? The Secret Gospel of Mary. What is your favorite quote? Well, this is another one. Um, by God's design, the only thing that we can't hide is a direct stare to the eye. When you look into a tenant and you tell them, I am going to fix your kitchen. I am going to get rid of your roaches. I am going to fix this leak. If you're not looking at them in the eye and, and, and they can see your eyes, they know that you're lying. Sure. All right. Let's take a little lighter note on this one. What's your favorite thing to do outside of work? Golf. Golf. Okay. I would play golf every day of my life if I could. And, you know, I'm in my 60s. I should be retired in Florida playing golf. And then yet I move up from, from Florida to Kentucky to manage apartments. So uh, yeah. that makes it even more desirable. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Francisco. I really appreciate it. I think this was an awesome episode. Where can our listeners find you? Well, we have a website called Bluegrass Multifamily, www.bluegrassmultifamily.com. There they can see who we are and the properties. We do not have a website for our property management company, which is called Next Gen Property Managers, because we're not taking uh, uh, external clients, third-party uh, properties. So we manage the properties only. We manage only our properties. So our main business is the multifamily business, the, the, the syndication and origination business, the asset management business, which is Bluegrass Multifamily. And we're based in Louisville, Kentucky. Gotcha. Thanks so much, Francisco. You're welcome. Thank you for your time. This episode was brought to you by Crestworth Capital. If you're a busy professional and ready to make passive income from real estate investing, then go to CrestworthCapital.com where you'll be able to download a free copy of our ebook to help you get started today. Until next week, happy investing.